everybody. Welcome to another episode of Like a Street Photography Collective. I'm Ricky, and today's guest is Andrew Bybee. So once again, thank you for taking the time out of your day, giving a listener something to listen to. So please thank you for having me. Oh yeah, no problem. Please introduce yourself. Where you at? Where you been? What you do? Anything you'd like the world to know? Awesome. All right. All right. All right. So my first off, my name is full name is Andrew Yoshiaki Ito Baibi. I'm Japanese American. Excuse me. My phone is off. Um, my name is Andrew Yoshiaki Ito Baibi. I'm a Japanese American. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but currently I'm based in Tokyo for ten years now. Originally came here for college, stayed for grad school, and now I'm staying for considering applying to to postgrad right now, but I'm also working part time now. I started to work. I actually re- very recently got a got a part time freelance job at Tokyo Weekenders. I'm like really happy about that. And yeah, um, I, I think that's a little short introduction. I'm 28 years old. <laughs> There's not, nothing to it. Yeah. No worries. Still young. Still young. So hmm. that's cool. I got your. You lived in the U.S. before we started recording. Just a little brief introduction between us. But please yeah. tell us what it was like growing up in the U.S. And then we we know you moved there for school. Um, hmm. But was the transition difficult? Oh, the transition was difficult, but not in a way most people would think, I feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was born and raised in Los Angeles for, for 18 years until I graduated high school. All I knew about the world was Los Angeles surrounding, well, technically Burbank, California, and I enjoyed my time there, but I, you know, I did face some weird social challenges. Some kids poking fun of my Japanese-ness. Let's just say late nineties, early two thousands, where Japanese culture was wasn't really understood by the local community. There was a lot of weird exoticization going on. Yeah. And yeah, coming to Tokyo, I thought, you know, because in the U.S. I was called Jap or Chink a lot. I thought I was Japanese, <laughs> but then coming to Japan, you know, and mind you, I, I grew up in secular liberal California. <laughs> so yeah, all this happened even then. And, but coming to Japan, I thought, you know, you know, I'm in a place where people told me to go, go back to. So maybe I'll fit in well, yeah. but I thought I knew how to speak Japanese until I finally spoke Japanese to locals. There's a lot of reading the atmosphere, reading the roof, reading the air situation. That's literally what they say. And because of that, and because my, the, the Japanese I learned was half-assed because, you know, growing up in the U.S., was, I grew up speaking a mix of English and Japanese. And my Japanese wasn't that fluent as much as I thought it was. So it took me a bit of a transition time to get used to being in this community and being seen as a part of the community. I do have a Japanese citizenship as well. Mm-hmm. So being as Japanese, it took a, it took a quite a long while for me to get to ingratiate myself to the community, so to say. But now I came to have a bit of a mental balance where I'm Japanese and I'm American. And, you know, no matter what people say, otherwise, you know, nobody can take that away from me. And I'm pretty solidified with my identity now, although it took a while to get there. Yeah. Okay. So I, I kind of chuckled at something you said. I, I just want to apologize if people thought I was uh-huh. laughing at the racist remarks people were calling you. But the only reason why I ask is because my daughter is half Japanese and she kind of the opposite. She she was born here in Japan. She lived in Japan and she just recently moved to the U.S. So mm. it's kind of uh, similar situations for my daughter, but opposite. So, like I said, mm. she lives in San Diego now, 
And her main language was Japanese, and now she's trying to transition to English. But she's having a great time. And I know the U.S. can be kind of tough in, you know, when when it's... I hate saying this, but I've experienced growing up as well. When when people see you as different from the community, it can be tough. Yeah. So I, I know that part. So yeah. that's cool. You came to Japan. Do you plan on staying there for the remainder of your days, or do you plan on going back to the U.S.? Eventually, I, would, I think I would like to go back to the U.S. because there's a lot of things I do miss about the U.S. You know, I you know. I had some bad moments and bad memories, but I also had really good memories. And, you know, there's nothing I can take away from that. And but at the same time, I know that I have a better economic prospect in Japan, for lack of a better word. Okay. I know that you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I attended college here. I attended grad school here. You know, more, more people are familiar with my Japanese college names here. And also more people are more Japanese companies and corporations. They're looking for proactive English speakers yeah. compared to in the U.S. looking for more proactive Japanese speakers. So just by that, I do have a bit of a weird job security here in, in that sense. So it's going to be hard to like, you know, fully commit myself to go back to the U.S. unless I get like a really good opportunity there. But I, w- I think I can, I would like to be back sometime. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Very quick. You mentioned you had a job at Tokyo Weekender. Is that correct? Part-time. Oh, Part-time? Part-time. Still work. Very, very recently. Yeah. Yeah. So explain to us what's that like and what do you do for them, if you can talk about it? Well, uh, I can't say too much because I just finally got this. I actually got this new freelance position about two days ago, actually. <laughs> I'm kind of stoked about it. But Tokyo Weekender as a magazine is a, is a web, web magazine, but they're, doing, they're transitioning, transitioning to print as well, where it's an English publication. And you can actually type it up online and you can take a look at it. And it's an English publication which introduces very specific niche communities or subcultures, art culture, or even like underground artists, or even some new business developments or restaurants in Japan to to Western or English-speaking audiences for the most part. And I'm going to to conduct a couple interviews with some chefs at a at a new Pongi starting next week. Okay, and that's just yeah, I'm really really excited for it. Yeah, that's awesome. Subculture. Yeah. So it seems like the magazine is built around different kind of cultures. In a way, yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you do any photography work for them? Oh no, 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 not yet. I mean, just two days ago. So oh. I, I, I think I would, I would very, very much like to do so because they have a lot of really talented photographers. And one of them, uh, very famous on Lisa. Uh, I think she's uh, from Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a, she's a very well known. A photographer who does this kind of media work in Japan, and I'm really excited to to meet her again and hang out with her again. I, we've actually met a couple of times already, but she works for Tokyo Weekender, and I'm I'm curious to be if I can be under her wing and learn more as much as I can. There you go, a mentorship. Yeah, in a way. That's awesome. Okay, well, that's a really great intro. Appreciate it. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. But why don't you take us down the path of when you started photography and when you began making photos, what kind of photos did you make? <laughs> I started taking photos in a, in a very, I guess, American fashion, I suppose. That's the best way I can put it. Uh, I, I think I can 
remember a specific moment where I was like, oh, this is cool. And I really want to do this much more and more. Where back in 2009, when I was a freshman in high school, my father and I, and, you know, and took, you know, my father took my family and I to a little road trip to Grand Canyon. And along the way, there's a town uh, called Williams, Arizona. Yeah, it's a, it's on Route 66. And there's some very old, cool-looking gas stations, cars from the 50s, you know, all pastel blue, beautiful colors just lying about. And I borrowed my dad's old Nikon digital camera. And my dad also was a big camera person. And because, and he had, he actually had a Nikon F3 as well. So I used both of them, borrowed them or stole them and then use it and had a lot of fun with it, you know, doing very amateur stuff, taking photos of cars and, you know, making him look vintage with the old, uh, what was a MacBook, not MacBook, uh, old windows, like photo editing and making sepia tone, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I started out taking photos of, of cars on route 66 and, and just by that point, I was like, Oh, this is cool. And this is fun. And then next thing you know, in high school, I joined uh, the musical group or theater group. And, you know, I, w- I became the unofficial camera person, just taking photos of everybody for the event and that kind of stuff. And I just progressed through that, kept on doing it in college. And next thing you know, I'm here talking to a person who does this cool podcast. So Yeah, well, I appreciate the cool part. But yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean, I say this a lot and I mean no disrespect in any way. But Japanese yeah. people have cameras embedded in their DNA. I think you can say that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think photography plays such an impactful and vital role in Japanese communities and families. Yeah, definitely. And I think you can even go beyond that in a certain aspect where, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes back in the 90s, 80s, especially in the bubble economy where, you know, in the U.S., there was a lot of stereotypes of Asians or East Asians specifically who were taking photos of Mount Rushmore, <laughs> that kind of stuff, and enjoy, enjoying that kind of stuff. But historically speaking, you know, Japanese art form is, in a way, very much similar to photography in a way. Mm-hmm. Like ukiyo-e, for example, is a woodblock printing. And, you know, the function of the woodblock printing will actually make a lot of copies so people can see it. And, and in a, you know, I'm, I'm completely generalizing Japanese art history 101 in a nutshell, but, you know, ukiyo-e woodblock printing, it's a printing method where, you know, people can see as much as they can of people, like kabuki actors, landscapes, cities. So in a way, old school Japanese printing and art process is kind of fundamentally similar in terms of photography in a way. At least that's how I saw it. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little bit of connection there maybe, yeah. The Great Kanagawa Wave. Ah, everybody knows that one. Everybody does. And that thing, there's so many copies of it. <laughs> yeah. And people even take their own take on it. They'll, they'll you know, add things to it. Great image. Oh. People are probably going to Google search that now when they see it. They're like, oh, that's the name of that. The Great Kanagawa Wave. It's actually one of my favorite paintings. Yeah, same here. So are you familiar with Daido Moriyama? Definitely. Okay. I'm actually partially influenced by him and his mentor, mentor uh, Hosei Eiko. Or Eiko Hosei? I forgot which is the first name. His name sounds like both last names. <laughs> but yeah, I'm very familiar with him, yes. Okay, so I seen this post and they were saying how you, how you mentioned Japanese art form is, is such a vital role in Japanese life. 
where they mm. said, I, I always have problems pronouncing it, Ueoke. I, I practice mm. it, but they they were saying the Ueoke had such an influence on Daito Moriyama's photography. And if you Ukiyo? actually, yeah, if you look at some of his photos, they actually mirror some of the paintings. Like definitely, yeah. Like spot on. Like if you if you compare this one to a painting, like one of his images to a painting, the pose mm. it's so it's very similar. Well, definitely. I feel like you can actually especially say that for his photographs with uh, I was it a stage performer? I wasn't a kabuki actor, although he did take some photos of kabuki actors, if I'm correct. There was a famous photos of him where he was taking a photo of a person who was on stage performing, and his face was very clenched, his teeth was all clenched, not hung open, and that very much looked like those old school, like you know, uh, like with a like ukiyo painting of kabuki stage actors going crazy, gnawing their yeah. teeth out. There's a lot of connection there. Yeah, it's a very Japanese looking art style. I feel. Okay, would you say he's your most influential photographer? Not anymore, ironically enough. I think I was very much influenced by him in terms of street photography fee circa 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. especially location-wise as well, because his usual hangouts are Ikebukuro, Shinjuku, and those are my usual hangouts. I live in Saitama, Ken, Hanoshi. The, the closest station that's in the Tokyo like circle, like Yamanote region, is yeah. Ikebukuro, and I always go there, and that's where Daido Moriyama always takes his photos as well. But I think nowadays I'm more influenced by a more of a weird melange of Western and Eastern photographers from, from for, for example, for portraits, I, I'm very much influenced by his master, Eiko Hosoe, who is very famous for taking photos of, like, say, Mishima Yukio uh, for portraits. And for street photography, I'm kind of leaning towards now to Henri Cartier-Bresson recently in terms of, like, where, like, you know, I'm using millimeters often, I to get close, but closer and see some scenarios in person. But I'm also more influenced by Fan Ho, the Chinese, Chinese, Hong Kongese, yeah. forgive me, the mainland and Taiwanese community, everybody, <laughs> Fan Ho, uh, his work. And yeah, I really just love how those three photography, they're very different uh, in terms of how you best on a 50 millimeter, kind of gets close up. Fan Ho is very much different trying to get the entire scenario. Mm -hmm. I kind of land in the sweet spot between them or at least I try to yeah so you go from wide to close and you got a 35 millimeter did I get it um I do have 35 millimeters now but I feel like I'm using it now more so because of social pressure <laughs> because everybody who owns a like a always wax poetic about this a 35 millimeter 35 millimeter but honestly oh, yeah. I'm more of a shooter and a 28 shooter. Okay. So I'm always in between those two. Though that being said, I became a big 35 shooter on my Nikon recently. Okay. Yeah. So, Not so much. I'm, I love, I don't know why, I just love the 35. And it's, it, it kind of extends before the whole hype of a 35 millimeter Summicron mm. and all that. I just, for me, it's so universal. Very much. Yeah. The 28, I like it when I need it, but for some reason, it's just a little too wide for me. Mm. The 35, it gives me that little more zoom, but it's wider than the 50. So mm. uh, I feel comfortable shooting from a 
28 to a 50, and mm. but 35 is is my favorite focal length. But that oh, being right said, I've been using my Ricoh GR LTM and mm. my Leica recently, and I'm really enjoying it right now. Still not my favorite lens, but that's an expensive one. Yeah, I I. I was hunting for this lens for like months. I've always seen it and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get it because I wanted a 28, but I didn't want to buy the Leica version because it was more than I wanted to pay for a lens that I wouldn't use as often. So I settled with the GR <laughs> because I had the GR1V and I love that camera. Hmm. It's probably my favorite point yeah. of shoot. But yeah. <laughs> Here he he that that is probably the reason why I got the GR1V was because I know he loved that camera. And Makes sense, yeah. Going back, I wanted to ask you earlier, um the Provoke era and their photographs, how how did that impact you or influence you if it if it did at any moment of your photography life? Ooh, I, I never expected to ever hear that name, actually. <laughs> I mean, I know about the Provoke magazine, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but my goodness, I I never expected to ever hear it, ever, especially from an English-speaking person, to be honest, no offense. But yeah, the Provoke Era magazine is fascinating because, well, but I feel like at the same time, the Provoke Era magazine, oh, you got the whole dang book, holy yeah. crud. <laughs> this one. There you go. And I got the... Th- Reprints. Yeah. yeah. They're in the book, but I got the reprints as well. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm really jealous. The Provoke Era magazines and books are fascinating for me, but I feel like I'm fascinated by it because it's more of the social time period of Japan, I feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, 60s, 70s Japan, for people who have lived through it, you know, or, or, you know, or people who haven't lived through it, people like me, I feel like, you know, our current generation right now will be very surprised if we were like transported or teleported back to Tokyo of the sixties and seventies, because it's so vastly different. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about just like architecture or building, but in terms of social activism, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. like Japanese back in the day, uh, in, especially in the sixties and seventies, if they're doing riots or protests, like Shinjuku was on fire for a yes, while. <laughs> like, some people threw like, some yeah, and and when Japanese people protest back in the sixties, and these are like student protests too. Yes, they were. They got helmets, they got hummers, they got they got they even got pole arms, four by sevens. They got everything, and they attacked both police brutally, and and it was a big time of social upheaval. Like Japanese like uh, politicians get stabbed on stage. There's a very famous photograph of a young ultra nationalist stabbing, I think, a socialist. A Japanese Communist Party member or something like that, and there's a very famous order on him putting a little Japanese blade and stabbing him on the side, and it's just something like that. It's kind of hard to imagine that kind of social activism, especially from the youth. To be honest, mm-hmm. uh, to be it's kind of hard to imagine that kind of social upheaval where ultra right wingism, nationalism, even like some form of pangenetic fascism. And even like communism, like, you know, Cold War era communism, mind you, and socialism and Marxism, like clashing hard and, and people like also being paranoid, like, oh, we're going back to World War II times and with homeless veterans still on the streets. 
So, and if we look at the rate of Japanese, you know, youth uh, political participation, it's it's you know, as a as a person, as a Japanese youth, technically speaking, it's abysmal. Uh, the voting and the, the political participation of Japanese youth. If you thought, you know. Americans don't participate in the voting system. The Japanese don't participate in the voting system. And so there's like a whole complete generational split. And I feel Omoriyama Daido and all of those group of photographers back in the day, they very much, uh, uh, I don't know if benefited is the right word, but took advantage of the situation and photographing the very traumatic era of Japanese social upheaval and they were doing some avant-garde photography with that. And I mean, Moriyama Daido was doing street photography. Eiko Hosoe was, on the other hand, doing portraits where analyzing gender and masculinity, femininity, and taking photos of Mishima Yukio, who is a very renowned complex literary figure in Japan who is often seen as ultra-nationalistic and conservative, which he, imperialist, he definitely was. But he was also a bit of a, uh, bit of a uh, oxymoronic character because he is... Uh, people say secretly gay, but it's an openly accepted secret that he was an openly gay man. He had male lovers. He was very much into the idea of beautiful male masculinity and beautiful death where he was surrounded by roses. And, you know, his sexuality was that much involved in his masculinity. And, and it was also very effeminate at the same time. And so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on where even, and he was eventually, Attempted a coup, took over Boesho, if I'm correct, and then tried to take over the Japanese military. He did that kind of stuff, and when it didn't work out, he he had a kitty and he got his head chopped off. So you know, mind you, so he, everybody, every photographer back in the day who was actually proactively involved in some way or form, they were also uh, taking a, a hard mirror and pointing it back to the Japanese society, like this is the the left side of social unrest and this is a hard right side of social unrest and taking photos of that and because of that the title provoke was very much apt in a way yes, it was. and i'm very that era yeah so i learned a lot about that era and a lot of the stuff you just said through the larger book i showed you which i haven't finished reading but i was shocked to see and read that you mentioned it. The protests were mainly not just only the students, but many of the protests were from college students. Yep. And like I, I've never, I wasn't alive many, you know, in, in that era, yep. but I don't ever recall any kind of school kind age, like college level protests fighting the government for yeah. social equality in the US. So for yeah. that whole era to inspire and impact and develop Japanese photography is amazing. Yeah, that, I think if you really love Provoke, like that's a book that you would want to get. It was very difficult for me to get. <laughs> yeah, it it took me a long time to find it. And actually my mentor uh, Joseph Michael Lopez, he was the mm-hmm. one who actually kind of, I was aware of Provoker, but I didn't really, I wasn't focused into it. But, you know, he yeah. was, he's teaching me and we were talking and he started going into Provoke, the Provoke era. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sparked a curiosity in my head because at that point I was really, 
apt to learn wanting to learn a lot about photography other than just taking photos and buying photo books and looking at Instagram mm. and trying to develop and create my own style of street photography just by imagery that I wanted to kind of read and study, you know, what photographers were writing, you know, and he mentioned the Provoke era and I started looking into it because I love Japanese art artistry. I've been mm. around the world. I've seen all kinds of stuff, but there's something special about how creative the Japanese culture is when mm. it comes to pretty much anything, like especially the photography. I can look at Japanese photos and I'm, I'm just amazed, like how one person could come up with certain concepts and yeah. like looking at like European photographers, American photographers, they're creative too but in a completely different realm that is outside of how create creative the Japanese are. And yeah. uh, I want to use this as a perfect example if people are curious to know what I'm talking about. There's a page that I follow on Instagram and a friend of mine in Tokyo actually posted it and I, I found it. It is... Uh, I follow it and I, I looked through there. Actually, I just saw a book and I ordered it. I want to show you that one shortly, but uh, let me, what's the name? It's like Neo, I'll find it. Ah, Japanese.neo.noir. I'll put the the name in the show notes for those who are curious. But you can just look at these and just see the difference of how they create photographs compared to like other surrounding countries. Definitely, I'm. I'm actually very. I'm, I'm actually a fan of that page as well. Yeah, yeah. Small world. So I want to show but you yeah. this book really quick that I ordered because I saw it out hmm. there. Ugh. I saw it and I was like, "Wow, that's Japanese culture." Uh, oh, that's, you know what I'm talking. <laughs> I like about? how you can yeah, see the only girl. The girl. The girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to. It's the stupid background. Uh, let me turn it off. Uh, really quick. None. All right. So it's in Japanese. I'm sure you can read the kanji. Tokyo no koibito. I can't. I don't know if I can pronounce the dude's name though. Unfortunately, Japanese old school Japanese names are hard. Yeah, but just like the images, it looks like he got like the girls who work through like the the love motels and all of that stuff. But it's not only that. It's like travel through different parts of Tokyo, and it's actually a pretty good book. There was a few photos. That I saw. Sorry, my my <laughs> computer froze. I was having technical difficulties. Sorry about that. But there's a few photos I saw from the Instagram page, and I was like, "Oh, I really want to see this book." And I I got it. I thought it was a lot smaller than than it was, but yeah, just just that, that page is very influence influential yeah and that page also introduces not only photographers but even some like graphic designers or even some i don't know if social activists is a, is the right word but activists who like to explain certain scenarios through photography i suppose and my goodness the, these people they take their time to to actually read up and study up on photo basics and i'm like damn i need to go and study more about this yeah <laughs> It's it's so 
amazing how there's like all of these different avenues and resources of photography that I didn't even know existed until you actually start searching for it. And like yeah. you said, like that page has more than just photography and, and I and I appreciate it because like you said, I'm I'm learning more and this, this and the more I search, the more I find, the more I uncover and I just keep yeah. feeding my brain. Definitely. But my goodness, that Pogok era is like the sixties and seventies of Japan is arguably the best in terms of photography and like photog- photographical avant garde of Japan, as I like to call it, the golden era of Japanese photography, mm-hmm. where people actually you know, I feel, unfortunately, a lot of photographers, you know, in Japan, they try, they have a tendency of playing it safe recently, where photography has become more of a leisure or pastime idea rather than a method to socially critique. And let's just say that I'm, I know I can list tons of incredible Japanese photographers from the day, but currently I'm having a hard time to even list one, maybe Tatsuro Suzuki-san. Mm-hmm. That's about it. To be honest, and I and man, I wish I I look. You wish I could like go and see and experience that kind of Japanese photographical world firsthand. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, I I think I'm trying to emulate that kind of feeling the best as I can in my photography. Okay, well, I mean, you got to try. You got to get out there, and you got to do it. So, oh yeah, taking a lot of chances, and one of the main way, ways of doing it is actually setting up a specific theme and going with it. So Okay. So do you plan yeah. themes when you go out shooting? Uh, for That's mostly for photo shoots. I mean, I do a lot of photo shoots as well as street photography. And street photography, I try to, I have a tendency to photograph uh, people who are not necessarily, how should I put it, the most, I hate saying this because uh, it's not necessarily true, but I like photographing oji signs and that kind of stuff, like dilapidated, tired man of the Japanese society. I was about to say not photogenic, but that's inherently incorrect because I, I enjoy photographing them. <laughs> so, but in terms of portraits, you know, of course I do portraits that are for fun at times and, you know, people want to look pretty or look handsome and do that kind of stuff. But I have a couple models that I work very closely with and, you know, they give me full reign on creative license and, you know, they even critique me and I truly appreciate them, especially Hikari Yamagami-san. My goodness, uh, she gave me free reign on some ideas and it allowed me to try to socially critique certain aspects of Japan, Japanese society that I'm not too fond of yeah. through the medium of portrait photography and she's became the primary model for that. I've seen yeah. a lot of your portraits and I was like, man, where is he, he meeting all these people? So uh, I'm going to need you to introduce me to a lot of your photography friends. And it's so weird. Not, it's not weird. I'm actually really grateful for this. But I would say in the past month or two, I've been hmm. trying to discover more and more Japanese photographers. Not just, you know, Japanese people, but like foreigners, just people who are photographers in Japan. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to, you know, build my community and network of photographers here in Japan. Yeah. So because I'm I'm trying I'm I'm building this. I'm building this and building this community. It's getting bigger. You're actually the third person in a row to record a podcast mm-hmm. with me from from Tokyo. 
And I'm honored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first two, and actually, you're the first Japanese person I've. Am I thinking? Yeah, you're the first Japanese person I've interviewed on on my podcast. So that's also really. Don't touch my But. <laughs> uh, we're gonna go in Japanese. You'll beat me 100 percent of the time. I promise. <laughs> that's not a competition. But yeah, there's because you know, like we can go to Tokyo, and I've seen photographers who know me, and they're like, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" While I'm out in Shinjuku shooting, it's it's kind of like yeah. I'm I'm Daido Moriyama, and people see me and they come and approach me, and we'll start talking for a little while. But that see, that's my goal. I'm trying to build that, and actually, next week I'll be. Later this week, actually, I'll be in Tokyo. Yeah. So that's why I was, you know, I was extended the invite. I'm trying to put together a, a little photo walk from, from yeah. the podcast community that I'm trying to create in Japan now. This is it's yeah. going around the world, but yeah. Well, I hope to be a part of it. Yeah, it's yeah. all right. If you have Make it out. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the, the photography community in Japan is interesting because if you're in a certain group, you if you meet one photographer, you technically met all. <laughs> where, where, like, I don't know, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know, if, if you meet like one prominent photographer, like say, um, well, like Julian, for example, <laughs> you meet him, and then you meet like well, like five other people that you're connected with, and there's Don, there's you know. There's George, there's everybody. And then for some reason, like you can meet every other model that they work with as we work with Georgia. Georgia introduced me to her. Mm-hmm. She introduced me to other people. And next thing you know, you kind of bump into each other and she's like, hey, I know you. Yes. <laughs> and if you, God forbid, uh, say, oh, hey, I, nice camera, if they have their camera around. Mm-hmm. There's uh, eight times out of 10, for me at least, <laughs> that it was someone I already either followed on Instagram or like already admire the work and saw it in the previous gallery and I haven't had a chance to meet yet. And then afterwards I have a tendency to bump into everybody like once every two weeks or so now. Okay. Back. Yeah. yeah. Especially John Merch. Did, He's like the death for every uh, Tokyo guys in community. <laughs> did John Seipel Tokyo camera style you yet? John Seipel. Yep. He already did. He actually did it twice to be honest. Uh, he, I was visiting his Totem Pool uh, gallery, which if you have a chance, totally recommend. It's fantastic. And I had my old BFF Nikon S3 Olympic, the black paint one that was beat up. So ugly and beautiful at the same time. And he was going on a a lovely rant about how cool it is. And and I'm like, I'm so lucky to get it for a really damn cheap price after haggling uh, Kitamura camera. (laughs) (laughs) You haggled Kitamura? That's an accomplishment. Oh, uh, just speak English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was able to get a damn good price in that camera. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was having fun with that. And he, he also uses a Leica and also he uses a Nikon. I'm a very big Leica and Nikon mm-hmm. user. I'm half and half for that. And one of his projects, he, he used a Nikon F2 and we kind of bonded over that. And yeah, I sometimes, you know, send a message to him and he's like responses with a heart. I don't know. I think he, I don't know if he actually remembers me, but I'm really glad I met him a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So I've met him a few times as well. I went to visit him. I met him. The first time I met him was a photo walk and it was at, it started at the totem pole gallery and, and whenever mm. I'm in that area, I do go. I like going to see the little 
whatever show mm. they have. I was actually trying to rent some space, but they were so booked up and they just, I guess, forgot about me because they're like booked until next year. Yep. And I'm assuming because of John and being, you know, I know knows him now because of the Leica project and yeah. when we showed up with a new Leica M6, oh, he already had a good damn name recognition with Tokyo Camera Style. And now everybody knows him as the John. <laughs> and Golden Pole photo, photo, photo galleries. I, I, I someday wish to do a gallery there, but my goodness, the time frame and the, like, I need to save up. <laughs> yes. You will uh, have to save up. You could probably buy some more camera, camera gear for what they charge, which is not that bad. I, but. I don't need any more cameras. <laughs> Wait. Well, you live in Tokyo. You can find the deals. Ugh, so jealous. But why don't you get along? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but why don't you tell us when you actually started street photography? Because you mentioned when you started, it was taking pictures of old cars on Route 66. In terms of the pure. Street photography purists in terms of going into streets taking photographs of people, that was actually a lot more recent, I feel. I think I can say 2018, 2017, 2018, around there. Up until then, I, did, I, I didn't really do street photography. I was more of a portrait worker, actually. I did a lot more of that. So I started out taking photos of cars and, and then portraits, you know, photos of friends and groups, but, and then portraits. And then for me, it was back and forth between cars and portraits, cars and portraits, because, you know, in my hometown of Burbank, we have a lovely restaurant called Bob's Big Boy. The, not the original one. It was the <laughs> second, one, but it's the, currently the oldest Bob's Big Boy made back in 1949. If you've seen Shrek 2, they have made a whole parody of it. Yeah. And every Friday night, uh, that place has a car show. And you see some of the rarest, coolest cars from from 1950s Chevys to old Mustangs to like old race cars to European imports, modified Model A Ford, Model T's, you name it. Every kind of car you can imagine for a doo-wop meeting. And I took photos of cars there. I had a lot of fun doing that. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, for a long time, I was very shy about photographing people because I was wondering about the legality of it, number one. And number two, I was always worried like, oh, maybe... People are going to look at me like I'm a creep, weirdo. But once I crossed the threshold, I'm like, ah, it's nothing to, nothing to worry, something to worry about. And 2018, I was doing a little project with my my Nikon, my dad's Nikon F3. Where around the time I switched completely over to analog equipment because I just having so I just had so much damn fun with it. And this was still the moment when you can still get film relatively cheap like Fuji Venus 800 which was my favorite stock back in the day RIP was about 500 yen per roll wow. it was something like that yeah and uh, you know I, I didn't have a chance to really use Natura 1600 but I really didn't need 1600 I, I just love that 800 speed color from I still have one in the deep freeze waiting for a special moment and I one of the things I'd like doing that was I started out with a new project where I photographed taxis in Tokyo where mm -hmm. because back in the day like until the mid-2010s, uh, the taxis in Japan were very vivid and they're very like contrasty. Like they had a lot of different shapes, sizes, and they, some of them look very retro with a chrome bumper. But nowadays, they're trying to emulate London. London, black and cat. With the black ones, and I'm like, that's ah, so ugly. It's so un unoriginal, very generic looking. 
the taxis back in the day in Tokyo, they come in a variety of colors, like lime green with yellow and white checkers, orange stripes, uh, silver with, with rainbow highlights, like, and, and the, the little dash will be different too for each model. So I was having a lot of fun with that, but after COVID, I, I'm like, it's not that fun taking taxis anymore because they all look to the goddamn space now. So then I thought it might be interesting to take photos of people. When 2018, I started, I took a roll of T-Max D3200, uh, put it in my, in my Nikon F3. You know, it has an auto mode, which thank goodness for a learner, that was a big benefit. I did some photos around gold, not golden guy, Omoide Yokocho near Shinjuku, and I just love the result of that. And mm-hmm. ever since, I've just been doing street photography ever since. <laughs> and I try to do it at least once a week or twice a week as much as I can, you know, if I have the time and money. Yeah, I love Moida, Yokocho, and Golden Guy. Those are my my go-tos. I, I'll start and I'll finish there every day that I'm in oh, Tokyo. Yeah. And you, it's really ironic you mentioned Natura 1600. When I first started shooting film, that was actually the first film I bought. I knew nothing about film. I'm so jealous. It was, <laughs> it was discontinued. And this is where if I would have known what I know now, I would go back to my that day self and tell myself to buy every single roll they have and put it in the freezer. But yep. do you know, I bought a pack of three from this small little, I, I it's not even like a Photoshop, but you know, like, those places where you just go and drop, you go and now print your photos for you. It's not really a development place, but they sell like photographic stuff, film, yeah, like, some batteries, like those small like palette plazas exactly. or like small little. Kind of stuff. It's like the size of a a koban little police box. Yeah, literally hole in the wall. Yeah, and I walked in there, and they were actually closing, and they had so much film. But I didn't know anything about film. I didn't know how much of, of it I was going to invest. And they were selling a three-pack for a thousand yen. Yeah. Natural. Nowadays, a hundred is a thousand plus. Yeah. God dang. Film has become absurdly expensive recently. So I would definitely have gone back and bought the entire stock that they had but not only that i only shot two of the three rolls because i traded my friend for a roll of hp5 stupid no. <laughs> hindsight is 2020 isn't it yeah but yeah you know it is what it is i got to shoot it i didn't shoot it how i should have shot it i didn't know anything about film i know what iso 1600 was but i didn't know how to rate and shoot on film Mm. so yeah i kind of ruined the majority of those shots but it is really it is really nice yeah i wish that's if fujifilm was gonna bring back one film stock i would tell them to bring back that one same pro 400h i've shot so much Mm. it is beautiful but natural 1600 that's that's the money maker. I just miss photographing uh, stuff at night with that film because I don't know. There's something about Fuji because Fuji film they make they you know despite you know my qualms with them they legitimately make good products. Yes, they do. 
digital and my, yeah and my goodness like a good example i sometimes like photographing like sea creatures at like an aquarium or something like that and one of my favorite photos or taking photos of in the back of the day I was taking photos of like tuna fishes in like a tank and they're going round and round and round and you know i shot one roll in black and white and then i shot two rolls in color because back then i was still able to do this I shot one roll of Fuji 800 and, you know, Venus. And I also shot one roll of Lomo 800. Lomo 800, nothing came back. And I was really disappointed with that film stock because, and and meanwhile, Fuji 800, I don't know how it, how it did it, but it was able to isolate the the water and the fish and the tank completely. Yeah. And everything was complete focus. I mean, aside from focus, uh, everything was in perfect sharpness. And it just, and the fish just gleamed. And meanwhile, and the Lomo 800, it just had a sheen of yellow all over. And I was like, I can't even see the fish. It's all fogged up with the water. So I'm like, how did Fuji do this? And now I have one, only one of that roll left in my fridge. And it's a 27 shot, not a 36 shot. Ooh, you're going to enjoy those 27 shots. Oh, like the bag, like the most expensive filet mignon. <laughs> I like of, of the more affordable film stocks Fujifilm offered. One of my favorite was the Superior 400, but the four-color one. So the one that promoted yellow on the box, kind of like their digital sensors. Yep. I don't think they sell that particular film stock in the U.S. So you can go to Walmart and buy a three-pack of Superior, but it's just kind of like the badge name for a 400 ISO. It's completely different, but that... The yellow one that's super hard to find, I think it's probably discontinued as well. It's discontinued. It, it was it, it was one of the nice ones to shoot. It, it really was. My goodness, Fujifilm, what are you going to do? Why are you, you going to be what you are sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 was still, I still love you and I'll still shoot your equipment and your film, but God damn it. <sighs> I'm contemplating right nowadays like, because Fujifilm temporarily stopped production of color film in Tokyo. Yeah. I'm contemplating like even getting like disposable cameras and then like take it to a dark room, break it open, roll it up and use that film. <laughs> get a, some people actually, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, get the, the change bags. Yeah. I want to, I'm kind of contemplating just doing that so that I can just keep on shooting Fuji in some way or form. Yeah. They're acros, which, so it's controversial they, there. It's it's rumored that Ilford actually makes Acros too. Oh, it is. Okay, that's hundred percent. That's what I think. I mean, you know, they never specify completely, but if you look at the box, this is made in England. So, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of like on the nose. And I, if I'm correct, Ilford does do this kind of stuff. Well, a lot of companies actually. If I'm correct, I could be incorrect. Maybe I shouldn't say out loud for. For legal reasons, but <laughs> I heard that some some third party roll light stocks were re-rolled Kentmere or Oriental mm-hmm. film was a re-rolled Kentmere as well, which is a part of Harman technology. So nah, it's kind of hard to say. It's all over. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and this is a controversial opinion. I like Acros two versus versus the original Acros, and I've used both. I've used both. I still prefer one. Only because when I push Acros 1 to 400, I actually get a really good image. Now, but that being said, there's a disclaimer to that. I don't develop my own film anymore. So 
when I shoot my Acros 2 with 400 speed and I send it off to get developed, I don't know how they're developing it. So mm. it's possible that their development process is not pushing it correctly. But mm. they send it to mainland to get developed out here in Okinawa. They send it to mainland to get yeah. developed. So I'm pretty sure they'll know how to push 400 film. I'm pretty sure they do, yeah. yeah. Like big, big camera, Yorubash camera, everybody, went, for some reason, when they develop black and white, they turn it out to an external factory. They can do color in an office because they have Fujifilm equipment. Yeah. But they can't. Uh, for a while, they couldn't develop Kodak film, actually. I think they can do it now. I may be wrong. Don't, quote, don't quote me on There's uh, certain ones. So they won't do like Portra. They will only do the more affordable C4. Like the Ultramax. Yeah. 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 And don't and never start on the 120 film. They don't even touch those. They won't. <laughs> they send that off. <laughs> yep. But I remember hearing that for the black and white, they take it to a specialty stop. I think I passed by it once. I think it was like in somewhere in Nakano in the area in Tokyo. And it's like, it's like that one film lab out, out in California where they dip and dunk it all. So it's actually done surprisingly well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm currently only after I've seen what I was paying for and film development cost and what the film actually caused to buy one box. Mm. I successfully shot all of my stockpile of film and I currently only have three rolls of black and white. One is loaded in my M3 and I have two boxes of HP5 mm. and I will only shoot HP5 now only mm. because it's rather affordable and I like black and white. So win-win for me. And I don't want to stack up hundreds of rolls of film anymore mm. yeah my 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 intention for shooting film is when i know i want to shoot film i i'll buy a few rolls and i'll shoot it yeah but five is my max i don't want to go past five only because the last three or four times i had film develop i shoot it in bulk and i had like 50 plus rolls each time so when i dropped it off it was ah. Uh, it hurt. <laughs> uh, give me a little bit of your leg and your arm, please. <laughs> yeah. I could have bought your Nikon S3 original black paint a few times with what I've paid in film development costs from Kitamura. I feel like you could, actually, yeah. Yeah. For me, I'm very fortunate because I rely on a local site in my lab. It's not local to where I live immediately. Mm-hmm. Like the local vicinity right here, but, you know, take a... 15, 12, 15 minute train ride out to Higashi Fushimi. There's a shop called uh, Nishimura Kamera Shop and the mom and pop shop over there. And, and their son is also working as a second or third generation. Mm-hmm. They're the Swedish and they keep film prices surprisingly low, even by Tokyo standards. And they, they develop everything cheap. Thank goodness. Like black and white, color, 35 millimeter, 120, it doesn't matter. They are, they'll develop all for about 550, 600 yen. Yeah. Even for black and white, which for black and white, usually when you ship it out, it's like a thousand plus plus yeah. yen nowadays. Over here, I pay become, 1,800. Yeah. So 1,800 yen per roll. That's rough. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm very fortunate because that shop really t- takes care of me and they haven't really increased their price that much in the three years I, I, I've used, used them. 
And I have my own scanner here, so you know that saves a lot of money as well. So that's I mean, cost, yeah. you know, cost the ways of doing this. That's my saving grace. Is I also have a a film scanner, which I'm really yeah. glad I bought when I did many years ago. They were still rather mm. they're still expensive now. If you buy the new models as they release, when I bought mine, it was the new model, so I paid a lot for it. But because of that, I never sold it, and I kept it because I was like I invested all this money. In film camera equipment, in film, and this scanner, I have to do something with, I have to do one part of it at least, right? So other than shooting the film, I need to contribute to either developing it, which I don't have the time to do. So that's off the, that's out of my options or scanning it. Scanning is a little easier because I can, you know, set it up, push scan, and then I can do something else. With the, yep, let with it the go. development, uh, I got to. Agitate, shake, pop the bubbles. Oh yeah, do all that fun stuff. I do the same exact thing, and well, well, it works out for me so far. And I have been. I think I really like the results that come out of it. And fortunately, a lot of people that saw my work enjoyed it too. So you know, mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm very grateful of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've been we've been all over this place with conversations, uh, and I really do appreciate it. The, the conversation is really good, but I I would like to know kind of your approach when you're making street photos, and I'm, we'll probably probably go to a couple locations because I've shot there, and I'm very familiar mm. with the area. So I would like to see and know how you approach it when you go out to take photos in in the Yokochos and Shinjuku and Ikebukuro wherever. But what's your approach for street photography? What do you look for? What do you want in your viewfinder whenever you use your Nikon or like whatever camera you're using? What do you, what elements you want in your viewfinder before you push the shutter? I think the number one thing I look at, aside from, you know, the lighting and that kind of stuff, you know, work, and it's important to have a good, good idea of that. One thing I always look for are interesting characters and people. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them in Shinjuku and Shibuya <laughs> and Ikebukuro area. And one of the interesting things I always look for is people who look like they belong to a different time period, number one, mm-hmm. or people who have, there's a saying in Japanese language where, where male that sticks out gets hammered in. And interestingly, there are some people who have, st- who stuck out like a, hard nails so much that when you hammer them they'll break the board and you see some of them in Tokyo and fortunately they're not as belligerent <laughs> so I'm I'm not I'm kind of comfortable taking photos of those kind of people and such but for me I I have a lot of interest with Japanese Osan and Ochi-sans like older older male figures mm-hmm. because I don't know exactly why. I, it's not that I don't shoot, uh, you know, women or children in the middle of the street or do street photography, but I'm more inclined to photograph older men because I don't know. There's some people who, I guess, it's that hardcore either hardcore patriarchy in Japan or it's like that that age where they don't really give a shit anymore, or like yeah, I'm doing this here, whatever. What do you want? That kind of attitude. But there's some people who who actually would be very expressive or keep on doing the same thing they've done for the past 50, 60 years, even to this day. And you can really tell by the stride or the pattern of walking. And I keep an eye on them and keep an eye on their faces, especially their face. Like 
what kind of emotion they're showing. And, and in Shinjuku, for example, it's really bright during the daytime and they get really bunched up face. And there's something about the, the look and the way they carry themselves where it's very fluid in a way that I really enjoy. And I take a look at that and photograph it. Uh, other other things I look out for is, especially when I'm in a place where it's very lively or boisterous, like say a festival time, for example, I always look for yatai, the places that have the cook and food and people making little eateries, that kind of stuff. Because one of the interesting things I've realized is that the people who cook the food, they look quite like their food. I don't know how and exactly why. One photo I like is I took a photo of a person who was making takoyaki in the middle of Torinoichi Matsuri in Shinjuku. And this guy, my goodness, he had a bald head. He was round. He had a round, round figure, round face. And he, he, every, every, his cheeks were round. Even his eyes were round. I don't know how to explain it. But it looked like a takoyaki was making a takoyaki. That's <laughs> yeah. the photo. There was a person who was making jagabata with potato, with baked with steamed potato with butter lad, lad onto it. And usually on the top of butter, they have a little big cut and uh, butter comes out. And there's this oji-san who was very face was scrunched up, dark in the expression, very hot and red. And his head, I don't know how and why, but he has like a major scar or a little gash here or some scarring. And he was sweating like a sweating profusely. He looked like he was a, he was one of his own steamed potatoes. So at the end of the day, I feel like I always look for characters that match what they're doing. Tired and sweaty, smelly businessmen who are around rough housing, tired, dilapidated Oji-san who's just trying to make it through the day while scrunching their face, and Japanese uh, uh, yatai workers and the festival festivities. My goodness, Japanese festivals is where it's at in terms of photography in Japan because that's where all the inhibitions are gone. All these characters show up you know, all these characters come out of their, their dark nook and cranny of the world and show up. Yes, they do. And they do, and especially certain festivals, oh my God, there's a there's interesting characters that show up. Like, Torinoichi Festival in Shinjuku, they have one of the last few freak shows in, in, in Japan. And one of the last, and so much so that you're not allowed to photograph on the inside. But when I say freak show, I'm imagine like Barnum and Bailey, like Phantom of the Opera, kind of you know, like Victorian era bullshit. You know, here's a lady with a snake and and playing around with it. There's a lady pretending to be Ursula with dead octopuses. There's a there's a girl who's doing brown face pretending to be an Indian goddess doing giving a a, a, a pile of candles on fire fellatio. Uh, there's there's some like yabanji from Okinawa. That's the that's the terminology they use, where they come out and they're basically pretending to be like gorillas and blackface. I'm like, how do you get away with this kind of stuff? And then there's a lady who like who does who gets a hochikisu, which is a stapler and staples herself. There's a who swallows swords. There's a the, uh, the last one I saw that freaked me out was that they had a special man from Hunan, China. I don't know if he's actually Chinese, but <laughs> he had a beam through his cheek and he was pulling on this pillar of, you know, a little cart with cinder blocks on it. And now, now mind you, freak shows are usually, historically have been very, 
well-organized event, for lack of a better word, in historic, historically speaking, like there's Barnum and Bailey, P.T. Barnum, on all those Ripley's Believe It or Not bullshit. But this one, mm-hmm. you can tell it's grassroots because these people, they look like they painted themselves with, with dirt. Yeah. Uh, the lady who's like stamping herself gets blood everywhere. The person who's pulling on the stuff, he, you can see the little tear here, like, ooh, Oh, you don't, you're hurting yourself. Like they're doing all these acts, but terribly. <laughs> and for some reason, they get away with it it's so much so that I, since they've been doing this since like the Edo period, where it's like this was considered to be a form of fun from back in the day, and you see these kind of people on stage performing around and about and performing, doing other stuff. The local yakuza's come out. The yakuza's concubine comes out with all these tattoos on. Uh, smoking cigarettes and holding beer and my goodness when they're drunk they're photogenic and they're open to talk to you mm-hmm. there's a I, I'm, I'm terrible with names I really wish I wasn't because this photographer I really enjoyed there's a Zainichi Korean or I'm not sure if he's Zainichi he's a, he's a Korean photographer in Tokyo who photographed uh, people in Kabukicho and like from, from the 90s or early 2000s and photographing the homeless and and he also you know Mind you, uh, a Korean man asking to take a photo of a Yakuza man is like virtually unheard of, oh, yeah. especially those old, old right-wing Japanese, you know, neo-ultranationalist Japanese people. So this one, so but he had the courage to ask these Yakuza henchmen, like, hey, can I take a photo of you? And they obliged, and they took him to his headquarters. And and he, he was allowed to photograph everything. One of them was hilarious. There's a Yakuza henchman who was doing security guard tasks, but he was dressed up like he was going to a sauna. He was shirtless, showing his back tattoos. Like he had a hachimaki on, like sitting like this. And there was another person who was showing his uh, little sake. Like, oh, this is the, the thumb I cut off. And it's yeah. in this little sake preserve, showing that to him. And he took a photo of him. I'm like, there's a whole dark side and underground of underground side of Tokyo where yeah. not so many people outside of it are familiar with, not even a lot of people living inside of Tokyo are familiar with. And there's a lot of that. And during festivities or festivals in Japan, they all come out. And usually from places where you're never allowed to go in, I'm not allowed to go in. I'm, they consider, some of them consider me tainted Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, festivals are, is where you see all the interesting characters at and, because of the liquor or because of the situation, they're more they're more obliging to have their photo taken. So Maybe always take it. Oh, definitely, yeah. Keep an eye on the calendars or for festivals, and you're gonna have the best time as a photographer in Tokyo. Yeah, I just we just missed the one in uh, Asak Asakusa. Asakusa. Yeah. Uh, I was so yeah, Sanja Matsuri. Yeah, and I had a blast there. Then <laughs> everybody else. Yeah, I wish I could have been there for that. I didn't know. I think I'm gonna have to start marking my calendar for these festivals. So just There's like a, you said, yeah, I need to do that more properly too because I missed out on the Kanamara festival, for example, in Kamakura, the infamous penis festival. Festival they had that, and everybody was there except me. And I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> next year I'm gonna have to mark yeah, that calendar. Uh, Okinawa only has two festivals, large, large scale such mm. that I can recall one is the Orion Beer Festival which is mm. typically centered around Okinawan traditional dance uh the Asa dance are you familiar with that yeah. yep so 
it is like every village and town hall throughout from North to South Island, they'll meet in the stadium. And for two days, all they do is just perform Asa. And Mm. it is amazing. It's probably my favorite time to go and take photos because you got the the painted faces, a traditional style, you know, how they, they do their makeup. And the other one is the Naha tug of war which mm. it's not very historical but it kind of is because it's because it started so long and yeah. it's very similar to the Orion Beer Festival where you have all of the little towns and villages not every single one but in the surrounding area they'll come and they'll meet and they perform they start at a certain time at one part of the street it's called Kokosaidori Kokosaidori yeah and you know international they, yeah did they set up there and then when it's time to get close to starting the tug of war part they do this like i don't even know how but they got these long poles they're like super tall mm. poles and one person is holding it and he's carrying it and jumping up and down and rocking it until he gets tired and they keep swapping out and it's just it's so cool to watch. I was actually able to see it. This is very funny. This is my luck. I lived in Okinawa for about eight years up to that point, And I hmm. was never able to make it to the tug of war. Every time I tried to go, I was late. It just finished. I didn't go early hmm. enough. I couldn't find a park, a place to park. No matter what it was, every time I tried to make it down there to see the event, it just... I, I didn't. So one day I was like, you know what? I've waited so long. And it was after COVID. So it was the first one that they did in three years. So oh gosh, I mean, was, that would have been crazy, huh? Yeah. I was like, I, there is no way I'm going to miss the first event. Like it was the first big event that Okinawa had since COVID. And I was like, I can't miss this one. I got to do it. So I went, I drove down there at 5 a.m. I parked my car. And the beauty about street photography is I can just walk and take photos. I'll always find something. So I started at 5 a.m. this day, and I was just walking around up and down Naha, all through the little alleys. There's some few streets that are Yokocho-ish, so kind of small drinking alleys. They're not the same as Tokyo, but for Okinawa, you get the kind of the same vibe. And it's still a great time for street photography. And I I witnessed the whole starting of the event. I walked down to the place where I knew they were going to start the tug. And I just picked a random spot. And it so happened to be right in front of the rope. Now, this rope is massive. It takes some, I don't know how long. But when I say it's from the ground to about the middle of my stomach, it's massive. Yeah. And literally the whole city will pull this rope it's you you you'll have to look it up but it, it's massive anyway fast Definitely forward will. to to make the long story shorter it, it they were getting to the point where they had to set it up so one half of the city has to pull it to the center and the other half of the city has to pull the other side of the rope to the center it's two massive pieces of rope and they put it the middle where like the the little towel thing is to know if you win or not it's like yep. on this cart with wheels, so you're literally just fighting back and forth with this thing. Anyway, 
as they're Jay setting Port. up to pull, put the rope in place, the rope on my part actually snapped. Mm. It was the first time it ever happened. <laughs> so you got lucky then. <laughs> I, I did. I was I was like, oh, the rope is broken. And then like everybody's going crazy. You seen all the news crews running from one side of this, you know, where they were recording to the other. And there it was just this big thing. Cause it was they actually weren't able to host the tug of war event. Mm. So they just called it a draw. It was the first draw in, in history because of the rope was broken. And I was <laughs> like, my luck, I waited eight years to get here to see this event. I got a goddamn draw. And it was a, it was a draw. <laughs> Actually, I got to see them move the rope a little because I was curious on how they did it. And I was like, okay, now it makes sense. But at the same time, like I show up and then the only time the rope breaks, the first time it breaks, I was there to witness it. It was really close too. Well, I mean, I guess that's luck in a way and that luck in a way. It's kind of hard to say. Yeah. So this year, I'm starting again. I'm going back down to Naha at 5 a.m. I'm going to park my car. I'm going to take the monorail in. And I'm pretty much going to relive... Last year's event, but this year. But this year, you're finally going to see a goddamn team win or lose. Yes, I hope. <laughs> I hope. Man, festivals in Japan are something else, though, aren't they? Because, like you said earlier, like it's not too old, but it's like so kind of distant enough that it's considered old school. Yeah. And in Japan, festivals are either, are either something super new and newly made or something primordial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Like, uh, for example, one of the oldest matsuris in Tokyo is the Kurayami Matsuri. Matsuri and like, Kurayami is technically blackout matsuri. And the reason why it's called blackout matsuri was, well, back in the day, it was considered to be a fertility festival. And let's just say a lot of women were discouraged from going out late after night there. And uh, there's stories of a lot of children being conceived that night. Hence, blackout, midnight, where it's a complete dark and considered to be a fertility matsuri, so, so, I suppose. But that thing has been around for maybe a thousand plus years. I won't be surprised if it was even longer than that. But then you would have the penis festival, the Kanamata Matsuri, which is surprisingly a lot more recent than people give it credit for. I think that's actually, you know, there were those old school uh, fertility, uh, female bodily fertility shrine or temple there, but in terms of the festival, the infamous pink penis, I think, of Washoi, Washoi. That was actually donated fairly recently by the, if I'm correct, the local LGBTQ community. Like, that festival was actually to protect sex workers in Japan. And let's just say sex work exploded in popularity or work after World War II. So there's that kind of historical narrative going for you. Yeah. And Thank the Americans for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Let's just say that the Japanese have a history of not addressing that issue in other parts of the world. And there's a lot of things that Japan needs to hold. At least the Japanese people need to accept in terms of what happened historically, but <coughs> Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they, they're still fighting over that one. <laughs> they're, yep. they're still fighting over that one. Yeah. There's, I mean, ugh. there's some issues that social issues that Japan really need to address in that regard. I did. Then Japan's not really good at it, yeah. I blame the, the food and the J-pop music. It just gives them a good out. 
It's like the Italians. Nobody talks about their war crimes and when pasta shows up. It's really hard to to, to hard to determine which one is more popular, J-pop or K-pop. I think internationally, K-pop has a lot more relevance. Yeah. Because in terms of modern singers, oh yeah, a lot of K-pop stars are killing the game right now. And, you know, people are following K-pop singers so much right now. And meanwhile, the J-pop song singers that are really popular, unless you're in the community or like say AKB anime or, or, yeah, or anime or game community, you're not going to be too familiar with J-pop outside of like Utara Hikaru maybe. But even then, mm-hmm. most Americans are introduced to her through Kingdom Hearts. And let's just say hardcore otaku weeb fanboys are introduced to AKB and they don't grow out of it. And I seen some shit mm-hmm. in Akihabara. Wow. Oh, everybody's done, seen some shit in Akihabara. <laughs> Dude, some, some of the things that happen here is low-key human trafficking by UN <laughs> standards. There's oh, some man. things that rest in that area, and it's so creepy. Like, especially when those Oji-sans, like, they, like, shake hands and, like, hold on to the 14-year-old-looking 25-year-old girl's hand a little too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Japanese culture, yeah. though, you gotta love it. And there's, it's a push and pull. There's some things I like about the American culture, but there are some things I really don't like about it. This is one of those things I'm really not too fond of in terms of Japanese culture. But in terms of photographing it, it's like, <laughs> I got something seedy and creepy. I like it. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Like, so I was, I was walking around outside of the base yesterday, taking some yeah. photos. And I'm walking and I'm, I'm watching. I seen something. I knew something was going to happen. There was a woman. We were kind of walking in the same path. Yeah. And I didn't take the picture of her walking because it wasn't that interesting. But I knew she was going to do something. You just had that feeling. I had that feeling. And we're getting closer. She just stops. She looks over to this, like, random... It's a... A rolling shutter door, right? So mm. I, I couldn't call it a garage because it wasn't a garage, but it was that kind of door. And it had a small little, it was like this thin. It looked like a post box. I don't know if it was a post box or not, but it was real thin, like sliding door. So we're walking. Mm. And I don't know what she if she knew what this house was. She just stopped and she starts looking in she like pokes it and she's looking inside this little post little door opening i don't know and i was like oh there it is there's my moment and i was able to get it and i was taking the photo it's just like well, I don't man, the beautiful the, the beauty of street photography i was, I was there and i ca- captured it of all of the the funny things to see i've never seen anyone stop just to poke inside someone's door ever the way that woman did. And if you think that's crazy, oh my goodness, the things you see in Tokyo, oh my God. Like, there are some interesting things in Tokyo where I was seeing it and I was like, I wish I had my camera ready because at that moment I just, and I'm like, I'm like, God dang, come, come back, please. <laughs> but my goodness, the things, sometimes some of the things you see, like I saw a lady I think, I don't know. The person could have been 
it could have been the person could have been cross dressing, or maybe he or she identifies as trans. I'm familiar. It's actually, terminology. it's kind of hard to tell in Tokyo because while there are cross dressers, but it is cross dressing. I was gonna say just people just like to wear that just to wear. It. I've seen so many. Of male people in Shibuya of all places in Harajuku area to dress like Playboy bunny girls. You see, and some of them are noted celebrities. There's an Ojisan on the Ikebukuro area who's infamous for wearing high school girl uniforms. And now he's balding, glasses, gray beard, which is in a braid, and the hair on the side that's twizzly. Like, so much so that it that. That outfit has become like a character or persona of his. There's another famous one in Shinjuku area where a person dressed up like a tiger or has a lot of cat stuff all over him. And he's a infamous tiger man of Shinjuku. <laughs> there's a there's a photographer, Greg Girard, if I'm correct. Uh, he's, yes. He posts his... I got his yeah. books. Hard yeah. books to find. Amazing photographer. <laughs> hard books to find. And I think he took a photo of this, that very person back in the 80s or the 90s. And then there was also that book of, uh, what was it, a Tokyo Time Slip, where it shows photos from 1980-something to 2019 or 18, back when the book was published. Mm. Same guy was there in the 1980-something photos, skinny with a mask on. So 30, 40 years later, he's there, older, mature, you know, you know, he gained the natural weight as you do when he ages. Still has a tiger mask on, carrying the boombox, where people keep on living this one persona or the character mm-hmm. up until the day I maybe, and yeah, back to that lady or person in who was cross dressing maybe, and uh, in and and Kabukito, the person was swinging an electric keyboard, <laughs> like from a cord, swinging it, broke it against that one poster area where it has all these these uh, host guys. You know the guys who are you know, who, who are very pretty and the, the girls, ladies like them, yeah. And he and and this lady was crashing this electric keyboard, which looked like an expensive Yamaha against that board. Five minute walk down that way. There's a very there's a locally prominent homeless lady lady who has a social media presence, and she started talking about the best gyudon places and was offering me some, which was the best gyudon to get. And then five more minutes walk that way. There's a, a crazy amount of love hotels, especially around the Higashi Shinjuku area. And you can see some like kind of Yakuza, goon looking people. You can tell because in Shinjuku Kabukicho area, uh, if you see people either missing a finger or two or driving an American car, especially Mustangs, those are Yakuza cars. Don't, don't go near those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you see them pass by and then they'll be picking up girls. And sometimes you see the guys like, oh, no, nobody's coming. Goes into the hotel, and next thing you know, you hear some little punches here. And like, oh, I gotta get out of this situation fast. And I'm like, damn, I wish I had my film and the camera. I'm like, <laughs> and then you see this is the most random stuff sometimes. Like another five minute walk from there, there's a random batting center, batting cage in, in, in that area. I'm like, why, why is there someone practicing how to hit a baseball at 5 a.m. in the morning? After coming out of a love hotel with a hooker, like there's some interesting characters you see in, yeah. in Shinjuku, and there's like a weird insanity of it where I don't know how to explain it, but there's a lot of people who survive and thrive off of it. Where uh, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Starfire and Araki, Nobuyoshi Araki. I do, 
I am. Uh, he did a documentary-ish kind of thing back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where he talked about how, how all these crazy people and this pollution, the toxicity, the randomness, the craziness of, of Tokyo of it all. People will live because of that. He was also saying that, uh, like if, uh, if you take a person who was living in this environment comfortably for so long, and he retires to the mountainsides or somewhere very peaceful, he's going to die in a week because it's going to be so boring. There's no stimulant that he's going to drop dead. <laughs> Probably. He has point, arguably. Yeah. You know, a lot of retirees who come to the mountainsides of Tokyo, uh, mountainsides of this, like Saitama or Chiba or maybe even Yamanashi area, where the water is clean, the air is filtered and beautiful. The, yeah, people start to age immediately and die. Meanwhile, there's Oji-sans who are 90-something years old in, in Tokyo who climb the ladders for fires and such and do like little festivities kind of stuff, half drunk. So I was like, man, if you want to live long, maybe enjoying all the toxicity of Tokyo, maybe you won't want to go. Yeah, there's, there's ample photo moments because of that. And talking to the local community really helped too because because there's some things that maybe you're not invited to usually or there's no there's no invite on Tokyo cheapo or there's no <laughs> nothing like that but then you talk to some people and they'll be willing to bring you along yeah I need and, to meet those people definitely Tokyo Golden Guy the best place to do that yeah no I I've been trying to get into the the member only clubs in Golden Guy I need to in I think you're you gonna want- be you're gonna be my my local my local friend that's going to take me to all the Mustangs in Shinjuku. Cause those are the ones I'm really looking <laughs> for. Yeah. I, God, I, so have you seen Bruce Gilden's work in Tokyo, Osaka? Like he's, he's done Japanese photography. Back in the day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're fantastic. And honestly, I'm very much a big fan of Bruce Gilden. Although I do know that, Bruce Gilden kind of divides the photographic community half and half because some people find this method very invasive. Personally, I think it's more about the the context, I feel, and also more of the, the, the positionality, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I personally don't have any qualms with him. I mean, I, 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 some I people... Either. I know what you mean. Reason, but he's interesting, yeah. I know what you mean. Like some people like they don't like his up close and personal style intrusive, but you know, it's photography. Can't judge. Yeah. Can't, can't argue with results for me. But that being said, his work in Japan was actually, a, it's not, it's very different. Cause while he does have some signature Bruce Gilden work, it's yep. not, it's not all just that. So he's actually I, like, I obviously one of his most, notoriable one was the yakuza photo where the the younger one was given you know the light to the cigarette but that was an interesting photo yeah but i was you know because he he wrote some some information in there as well and he was talking about how he came to japan and he went and he found these places by himself basically and those are like like you were saying earlier like those are places where most people just won't go yeah, but you know we're from this from the U.S. and it's a different kind of like 
In the U.S., you don't go there. <laughs> in Japan, yeah. being from America, we can go there. It's different. Yeah, there's a major difference with that. Yeah. And like, like for example, like you know, I'm from LA, and when when people and people, when when you're told don't go to downtown LA at 1 a.m. in the morning, mm -hmm. you not go. Don't go to Skid Row. Yeah, well, no matter what time, yeah, that kind of stuff. I mean, downtown LA kind of gentrified recently, and same with Echo Park area. You can kind of tell because white people are, you know, jogging with their dogs. It became safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a telltale sign for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, against white people, guys. But but like you can tell when some areas are like rough, and when some areas are oh safe and clean. And then there are some areas that are kind of in between, like Koreatown. Back in the day, it used to be kind of rough on the edges, but there was some charm to it because there's a lot of mom and pop shops there that I really enjoy personally. But that being said, you know, I can't argue with the safety of the modern, more gentrified look, but that's another story altogether. But in, in the U.S., when you're told not to go there, you do not go there because or else you either go missing, shot, killed, overdose on something, mm -hmm. or come home with, with some venereal disease that you won't be able to get rid of for your entire life. And I don't know if this is the American part of me where, you know, I am Japanese that, you know, by passport and as well, but I'm also American by passport and by, by birth as well. And my main context is uh, of culture is from, is of the U S point of view. And people say that some people say that they can tell that I'm American, not because of my accent necessarily in terms of speaking Japanese, but by the way I walk, mm -hmm. like I'm more, brash and open when I'm walking like there's that kind of stuff going on and on and and I, I'll be honest I'm not really on the thinner side you know I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm the chunkiest of chunky boys who eat meat lovers chunky pizza soup every day but I'm you know I'm better, I'm not I'm more on the wider side of the average Japanese person and just by that there's not that many people who are going to come up and do stuff to me. The only people who will are someone that's taller or very much more wider and more, more built. And those are a dime a dozen in Tokyo where even the Yakuza guys, no offense to them, some of them aren't necessarily the, the most gutsy kind of people on, on the planet nowadays. So because of that, maybe the way I walk, the camera, the gusto, maybe even the, the facial expression, mm. I guess. Not that many people like, like threaten me. Uh, it happened to me like maybe twice in eight, eight or nine years living here in Tokyo. LA <laughs> happened, depending where I'm at, Daily. once a week or once every four days, depending where I'm at. And so, you know, there's a vast difference by that. And the only difference is I'm worried that, like, oh, shit, he's going to act on it. Mm. <laughs> and when it's in the US, but in Japan, I don't really worry about that. And hence, I can take more of a I can use that to my advantage in terms of my Americanness, kind of even my brave and outspokenness. I guess where if you if you see like say interesting cluster of people in Japan when they're drunk and they're like making a scene, but they're you know they're going to be interesting subject in like middle of Shibuya. Yeah. If if you go in there playing as American, like oh my god, omoshiroi this and they'll be like more willing to yeah take a photo that kind of stuff, and. There's an advantage of playing up my Americanness and or my guisingness, for lack of a bad word. There's so many people think I'm Filipino, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just by using that, I 
do get some photos that I think the average Japanese photographer wouldn't get away with taking it typically. Unless you're Tatsu with, Suzuki. Tatsu Suzuki is on a different level. He, yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's got to you. He breaks everything he owns, but he's got to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's on his like 20th Fuji or Leica or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Fujifilm, I believe. Yeah, he, I don't know why how he breaks all that camera. They are thinking people break them for him. Uh, maybe for good luck, yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, Fuji, your camera. Fuji film just gives them another one. They're not they're not like a expensive, so Yeah. Yeah. Oh hey. man, I I I, I have that kind of camera one day. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had an amazing conversation. I haven't introduced your social media accounts yet. So please oh, sure. plug your social media accounts. So Instagrams, Twitters, Vero's, websites, anything you own. And you would like okay. the listeners to be able to view your work and support you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm very straightforward. I'm, I'm, I don't, I only really use Instagram, mm. which should diversify my portfolio a bit, but you know, that'll, that'll come soon. Currently you can find me at, at Mark, uh, Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W underscore by B-I-B-E-E. And that's my full name. If you just type my full name, I should be the first result that come up. Yeah. Okay. There's not that many bybees out there in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I will add that into the show notes and we'll get all the listeners over to your social media accounts. And, yeah. and now is a part of the podcast where I would like for you to highlight, recommend, recognize any photographer, artist, Yakuza member who has all 10 fingers, which is probably rare. Whoever you know that you think doesn't get the proper recognition they deserve. Ooh. There's like a whole list of them, actually. Um, may I list like maybe as many two, as you three? Want. Yeah, as many as many you want. Many of them. Yeah. Uh, there's just one photographer. I never had a really chance to meet her in person. I hope I do. Uh, her handle is at, at Instax, I-N-S-T-A-X, and Cheki, C-H-E-K-I. Oh, American Cheki. and Japanese version of the... Okay. <laughs> Using both, both of them together. And she uses, for the most part, uh, uh, the Instax wide. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, I don't know how she does it. She uses like a modified, like, uh, like uh, Instax wide camera with a, with a, with a, a Mia Press camera lens on it or something like that. And she takes some incredible portraits and street landscape of Tokyo and people. And her work is fantastic. I can definitely recommend her. Another person I can definitely recommend, where is that person? I need to look, look, look. to Where is her? Forgive me. to My good friend, uh, does, uh, he, uh, he's a Navy man living out in Yokosuka, formerly from Detroit. Uh, he's, his name is Julian Bibb, B-I-B-B. -B. Mm -hmm. And he's, a, uh, he's an up-and-coming up photographer. He does a lot of landscape work, and I, can definitely, I enjoy his work a lot. And if, if I may allow myself to put maybe one or two more names. Yeah, of course. My name's Eto. Let's see, what's that? Uh, crap, I can't. 
I feel like I'm gonna put on the spot. I can't remember the name immediately. Eto, come on, Andrew, your brain is still working for the most part. Koki Watanabe. He is. I think you would actually really get a kick out of him because he's a prominent uh, street photographer, and even he's getting branching out into portraits. But he's a hardcore old school Leica user. He uses only Leica M2, and he looks the part as well. Like he dresses up like it's the 1930s, 40s, and the 50s to this day. And and like whenever he, when he was in London, he was invited to a special event where he had to wear white suits and tail and a, and a top hat. So he looks like he belongs in that old school time period of like Domon Ken era photography era. <laughs> And he does some phenomenal black and white photography work. And he's currently in Ahime, Japan, but he also speaks fluent, very fluent English. And I think you, you can definitely have a chance to talk to him. And I can definitely recommend his work. And finally, there's one more person that I would definitely like to recommend if I can find him. And I just need to type out his camera on Instagram because he's, he's most famous for using that one particular camera. No worries. Kodak. There we go. Where are you? God, I feel bad because I'm really a fan of his work, but my, my, I told you I, I have a hard time remembering names for some odd reason. No, it's okay. Man, great. That that news has become unlisted, so that's going to be a little more funny as work. Where are you? I got to go do the old school school route. Interesting. Why is this page not showing up? My, I've He's experienced that too, where I know I'm following someone, but they don't. They just don't show up. If you like, yeah, you can uh, find it later and just send me the link in a direct message on Instagram, and I'll still post it. One second. I think I may have a link to finding him. I guess not. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta send it to you directly somehow. That's fine. No, no worries. I, I feel terrible because I'm, you know, we work together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. I won't tell them. Oh, you better not. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. All right. All right. I'll well, get back to you. Yeah, on yeah that's this fine. One, on this one. Yeah. 
just uh, send me that on in Instagram, and I'll make sure I, I add the last person. And the last awesome. question, the last question I always ask is, what does street photography mean to you? Street photography. What does it mean mean to me? Well, I have to separate that with, with two categories: street and photography. Now, street it can mean. I feel like that is a dime a dozen, to be quite honest. You know, if I we can take the dictionary definition of, of the location that is within the city here, blah blah blah. But then, you know, I feel like in terms of that, there's so many different ways of variation you can go. Over. Like Edward Steichen did pictorialism, where it's like literally street landscape or taking photos of buildings and some people in the shadows. Like Moriyama being up close and personal with some tilted angles, and then there's Bruce Gilden who go up in person. Literally photographing the people so much that so much so close that you're not even getting a, 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 an aspect or an idea of people in the background, and you know. So in that regard, you know, street can kind of mean anything. But in terms of photography, does uh, I like what Jose Eco, the photographer, first said, where sashin, the Japanese terminology for photography, is the kanji of it. Sha is reflection, and shin is the The one of the root words for truth, sha shin, and basically photography is in an instance a reflection of the truth. Now, truth is also a loaded term where you know it depends on how you see it and that kind of stuff, or what your opinion is. You know, or is it depending on stuff? It's going to be factually based. Depending on stuff, it's opinion based. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it's truth as how you perceive it and how you want to point that out. And for me. Photography then encompasses a very specific aspect of photographing. For me personally, people and and stories and narratives as much as I can, maybe even uh, even allude to something or homage to something, and then photographing certain people because for me, the people are what makes the city interesting, not the city and architecture in and of itself. Although that does help a lot, so that. And the reflection of my truth, or like what I saw of them, or what I got out of the photo. Like whenever I take someone I think of interesting, and I could take it to a comedic route. Like this guy looks like a takoyaki that's making takoyaki, but then I can see another route where I see another really tired, exacerbated man scrunching up, looking this way. He looks like a kabuki actor, or he's like he's ready to like if he was alive back then, he could have been maybe a samurai ready to kill someone. So I, th- I always think of that kind of narrative where it might be interesting to even like make some stories in my in my mind for them in a way. So uh, that's a bit of a loaded answer, but you know, oh, no worries. If it helps, I'm I'm still trying to figure out the terminology for my of it myself completely. But I do enjoy and think that the people is what makes the the cityscape interesting, and then I like to take photos of people off the street. So mm-hmm. okay, photography. No worries. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just, it's a personal how you feel about it. So thank you for sharing. And like, My I, pleasure. like I said, that's the last question I ask. However, now I would like to give you the opportunity to ask me some questions. Okay. Let's see. What would be a good one? Have you considered doing other work outside of street photography like say like portraits or landscape or and what would you say is your pro or con in regards of doing those kind of other fields I've done them all I have not yeah. done weddings 
but I was talking to a coworker of mine, and then I it was weird. I just got a sudden urge to shoot weddings, but not traditionally in the sense of being the main photographer, but mm. advertising myself along the lines specifically and only as a second shooter. Only because I can now have the opportunity to, one, take photos for a wedding, two, make money for taking photos at the wedding, and three, take the photos that I would want to take, the style that I would want to take at a wedding, Mm. as opposed to just being the, okay, we're going to pose you here, you're going to make this cliche heart with your fingers and kiss at the same time. Like someone else can get paid to do that. I want to be finding the moments that that photographer isn't able to get. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But I've done portraits. I still shoot portraits. I don't shoot them as often, but I do enjoy them. Hmm. Portraits are fun, especially if you can get a pop team to it. Ooh, in terms of another question, uh, this is my personal opinion, but I feel like a lot of photographers, especially on the online circle, for example, when they think of a, of a photographer or like photography, like say in the U.S. or like even YouTube channels, there's a tendency that's really focused on Western photographers, say like European, Western European photographers and North American photographers or photographers who are active in North America or Western Europe, nobody really truly looks at photographers from Eastern side of the European area to Asia minor or Asia, or even parts of Africa, even South America, even though there's lots of incredible photographers, who would you say uh, uh, would be a good uh, photographer outside of that circle that people should take a look at? Uh, Honestly, I think there's photographers very well known from the regions you said aren't. So I think, I believe, Sebastio Salgado, I believe he's Salgado, yeah. Brazilian. So there's your South American photographer. And East Asia, you, you mentioned quite a few. Araki, <laughs> Moriyama. Oh, so, I mean, there. I don't think that it's a point of the photographers being like, Famous because they are famous. I just think people aren't investing the time to learn about them. Mm. And I think the reason is because when you think of in the terms, I'm only going to use the street photography in in this aspect of, all right, if I'll use myself as the perfect example. I didn't know what street photography was until about 2018. I took photos in the street, I would say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing street photography because it was not in a studio. I knew that much, but I didn't know what street photography really was up until 2018 when I started learning about it. Now, that being said, I didn't know street photographers such as Joel Meyerowitz, Elliot Erwitt, Henry Cartier-Bresson. I didn't know they existed. So if I didn't know they existed, I didn't know D- Dido Moriyama. I didn't know Araki. I didn't know. I can't get his name right. The the creator of Ravens. 
I that, should know the name. Uh, I have the book, but I didn't know him. Very, yeah. very important piece of work that book, The Ravens. But mm-hmm. so I believe the people who need to know about the photographers in the regions that you mentioned know about them. And mm-hmm. as photographers and just people who love photography in, in general, it's our job to go and find them. Mm-hmm. In that case, is there a photographer that, that you think that maybe only you've heard of that people should know? Because I have an example like, of, like this where I, I only found this through an old Shashin magazine from the 80s, if I'm correct, 90s. And it showed of this one photographer, like you can't even find any of his books or prints or even his face of, of when he when he was still active back in the 2000s or up until he died. But his name was Ito Hiro. He was a one, one-handed, uh, one-armed uh, uh, portrait photographer using like an M, like an M3 back in the 80s. And he mainly took photos of musicians in America. And like he, he, he was a prominent photographer taking photos of Billy Joel before he was famous, for example. And, and he was like, he was a, he was a 28 or 35 millimeter cannon like this one right here on his M3 taking photos. And they did a whole article about him. And I find his look fascinating, but he's obviously not a household name or not even a well-known name in the photography world. Even those, even for those who really know their artists, they have to like really know that one book and article to find them. Yeah. Would you say you have any questions? I actually do. It's funny you say that. So, Funny story, I have to pull the book out. Hmm. So I've lived in Okinawa twice, and this is the second time. The first time, like right around the time I was leaving, my best friend from Chicago, he sent me a, a text message like, hey, do you know who this person is? Blah, blah, blah. There was a, a news article in the local newspaper back in Chicago. And sent me the link and I was like, wow, I love photography. Oh, this guy lives in Japan. And I started reading the article and then I clicked on the guy's website. There was a photographer from Osaka who actually moved to Chicago, the neighborhood that I was born and raised in called Pilsen. And he created a photo book. I've never seen a Japanese person in Pilsen, Chicago it kind of goes back to that joke where you were talking about LA where, you know, you would know a, a, a place has become safe when you see people jogging with their dogs. My yeah. neighborhood in Chicago was not the neighborhood where people were jogging. That specific demographic was not jogging with dogs. And yeah. this book, I have to turn my background off again, is the perfect example of that. And to answer your question, the artist's name is Akito Suda. And the name of the book is Made Me Better Than Before, Pilsen, Chicago. I don't think you can find this book. I clicked on the link. The book was a special limited run. And me being me, I'm a very kind of social person. I I sent them an email and I was like, it's like, my best friend from Chicago, he sent me a link and it was featuring your book. I'm from Chicago, the area you made the book from, but I live in Okinawa. And we actually exchanged quite a few emails and mm. 
he actually printed more because I requested him to do it. Well, that's sweet of him. Yeah. So he actually did 150 more, and I got number 79. And hmm. this was actually the first photo book I ever bought. And it was happened to be a street photography book back, you know. And it's very Henry Cartier-Bresson-ish with the black borders. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Got the black borders, and he captured my youth, not me personally, but how I grew up. Like, if I look at these photos, I'm instantly taken back to my hometown. Yeah. And these are from street portraits, like street photography as well. It's street photography, kids skateboarding, like playing stick ball, and like, all right, this one's like not even the focus. And if we really want to, dissect photography that's like a provoke concept right there yeah. is like nothing has to be in focus right yep so like doesn't even have to be straight. yeah it it this was it so to answer your question akito suda akito suda i hope i can find this stuff itohiro i couldn't even find this stuff anywhere and i searched my the heavens and the earth for him have you been to the Sutaya in Ginza? I have. Yeah. I need to go out more. The Chitaya and even all those bookstores areas out there in Ginza. Yeah, also oh. like Shibuya. They have a lot of good stuff. There's a, also a photo bookstore in Nakano area. I forget the name of it. I, I, I shouldn't know. I shouldn't know because I go to Nakano quite often. Nakamegaro also has some good stuff too. I went there to go to this one specific bookstore and they said they were open and they were actually closed. <laughs> so there's, there's one of them. I didn't buy any books that day. Next time. So you're from Chicago? Yes, I am. What's your opinion on New York pizza? <laughs> uh oh. Uh-oh. It doesn't exist. Nah, Ooh, it's good, but everybody knows the best pizza comes from Chicago. I enjoy my Chicago. Speaking of, when I go to Tokyo later this week, one of the places I plan on eating dinner, and hopefully some of the people who I hope show up, uh, we will, I'm planning on going to eat some Chicago pizza, because there's a few places in Devil's Tokyo. Craft. Devil's Craft is one. Butcher's Republic is the other one. But yeah, hmm. I, I believe I will be going back to the Devil's Craft. Devil's Craft is pretty dope. They have it's, some really good beers on tap as well. Good, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, um, when I was a, an undergrad at Sophia University, the one in Kanda Station, mm-hmm. there was a, a lot of students from my from my from my university there. I'm like, oh, I know you, I know you. Anyways, it became like a little student hangout. Yeah. Yeah. It became awkward when I took one of my girls and she knew someone there. Ooh, <laughs> I found the Kanda Devil's Craft on accident, actually. Hmm. I was just walking, taking pictures, and I seen what looked to be a Chicago-style deep dish pizza. And I was like, wait a minute. I know that look. And I got closer, and upon inspection, I was like, oh, shit, this is it. And then I found it. I found out, found out about it the same exact way. Yeah. Apparently, they have like three more stores now. There is like, a couple more stores. And then yeah. That's pretty nice. My Shinjuku background back on. Yep. 
which, right, right above Kabukicho. Yep, fun area. <laughs> In which I finally found the the other photographer I was mentioning earlier. Okay. Yeah, uh, his name is Shinnosuke Toya. He's a Japanese photographer. He is fantastic. But his handle is slightly confusing. No offense to him. You need to type Mozuku, M-O-Z-U-Q-U, a K-U, underscore Mozuku, M-O-Z-U-K-U, underscore F to find him. But he does some incredible work. He's the one that really introduced me to some hardcore Nikon rangefinder gear. Nice. And he is phenomenal. I definitely recommend his work, especially the photos he took in Mongolia, Nepal. Nepal? Was it Nepal? Yeah, I hope. I think it was Nepal. And also around Shinjuku in London. I can definitely recommend his work. Yeah. Nice. Definitely add him on there as well. So we'll get that. And he gets to English. Nice. All right. Yeah. Any other questions Surprise for me? Right? I think I'm good for now, yeah. All right. You kind of said everything I have, especially the second one. Phenomenal. Yeah, perfect. Well, all right. Uh, once again, thank you for the re- the conversation. It was great. And we got, you know, some good topics, especially that whole film and provoke area. You really got into it. Yeah. So maybe that would inspire some people to actually study it if they haven't already. Yeah, definitely. Maybe start some discussions, arguments. It's always important to have your own opinion. So, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, thank you. I appreciate it. To all the listeners, thank you for making it out to the very end. Appreciate mm-hmm. you and the support. For all the new listeners, hit the subscribe, like, so that the show can get up there in the front page where people can find it. <laughs> And actually, the podcast is doing really well where if you start typing the word Leica in any search, podcast search bar, it's probably number yeah. one. I've tested it on multiple Ooh, platforms. It's very difficult. Yeah. I've started quite a few different, like the tags on, on Instagram, the hashtags, well, obviously it's related to the podcast. It's actually becoming so hard to keep up with. And I'm the only <laughs> one managing it. When I first started it, there was only the tags that I was posting for my work. So it was like every time I click on it, just my three photos. And I'm like, oh, shit. Now I'm mm-hmm. I'm spending, I don't want to say hours because I don't spend hours on the phone at one given time. But uh, it's taken me time to actually go through to find photos to post onto the Leica SPC Instagram page. Hmm. So, oh, actually, yeah, I didn't plug that. So for all the listeners who are not aware, there is a Leica SPC. So it's Leica underscore SPC. That is my account that I tie with the podcast. And essentially, the goal is to just highlight photographers, street photographers, typically who use Leica cameras. I get a lot of tags from people who don't. And Mm. I'm not... Skeptical to not post the work, but I'm trying to refrain from it for the time being because there's a lot of work out there. Standardization helps, yeah. Yeah, so click on that. And then there's my personal Instagram, on xx underscore ixvi underscore xx. That's mine. You don't have to follow me. If you want to see my work, that's where I post it. 
So I actually never post any of my photos on the Leica SPC because that's kind mm. of redundant. Why would I have my own personal page just to post my page on the second one? I don't need to do that. There's other famous people that do that, but that's them. Not taken away from there. So those are mm. just my shameless plugs. And I think that's it. I'm going to wrap it up. People are feeling generous. You can subscribe and donate to me. Help me purchase more equipment to make this podcast more, I would say, purchase equipment to make improvements for the podcast, better audio quality, probably some production, and most likely Leica cameras. And there's a lot of directions that I want to take this podcast And I'm going to start introducing relatively soon and just look out for it. So, yeah, I'm taking a break for two weeks. So I'm going to be silent. Obviously, I'm just rambling now. People are not going to know, but they'll know when they hear this. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to kill it right there and and just say to all listeners, thank you. Have a good night. Thank you again, Thank you for having Andrew. Me. Yeah, it was great conversation. We'll keep in touch and hope to see you later on this week out in Tokyo. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody. And I truly appreciate your time, everybody. Thank yeah. you. Go look. Look him up. Andrew underscore Bybee on Instagram. Follow him. Like his photos. I'm Ricky. Like a street photography collective. Oiga, disculpe. Esta es una Leica?